So, Teachers College has a complicated history. The modern Columbia University Teachers College strives to create a smarter, healthier, and more equitable world. The college is guided by the foundational principle that there is more to creating equitable education than just education in itself. Originally established as the Kitchen Garden Association in 1880 by Grace Hoadley Dodge, the Teachers College sought to teach immigrant women applicable homemaking skills, such as cooking and sewing. However, the school quickly grew into an institution for people of all genders, with a scope much wider than domestic expertise. By 1887, the Kitchen Garden Association was established as part of Columbia University, and in 1892, with Nicholas Murray Butler as president, the institution was anointed Teachers College. However, the original students at the school, largely underserved immigrants, helped shape the philosophy of the institution's focus on education, psychology, and health moving forward. The idea that a student's background is integral to how a subject is taught. Teachers College's values are reflected in its focus on contemporary curriculum. Its curriculum and teaching department was the first department in the United States with a focus on the study of problems of curriculum and teaching. Teachers College Associate Professor of English Education Yolanda Seely Ruiz expands upon Teachers College's mission. Um, but, but also if you look at the mission and the vision of Teachers College, it is very much deeply connected to um, serving the community that they're in, right? Uh, Teachers College uh, knows, as most colleges do, that there's deep inequality in the world. And so even the originator, you know, Grace Dodge, the, one of the founders of Teachers College, w was thinking about um, the least of these, you know, children who did not have uh, as much as other children. So I think part of the founding principles of Teachers College is to be social justice minded. While founded on the principles of social justice and diversity, the Teachers College has had to adapt to challenges faced by society during its different eras. Professor Daniel Friedrich is an associate professor of curriculum at Teachers College. He spoke with us about this evolution and the cognitive dissonance that arises from Teachers College's history. So, for example, in the early 20th century, um, there was a curricular, curricularist called uh, George Counts who was extremely critical of capitalism and was trying to bring about a different kind of society through schooling, um, starting from a socialist perspective. And that was very critical at the time, it was radical, etc. At the same time, Edward Thorndike, a founding figure of experimental psychology, also worked as Tishonesh, while uh, sustaining eugenics uh, as a principle for thinking or measuring intelligence. So you have both of those lines coexisting in Teachers College. Um, Teachers College, uh, so, so that was both at the same time, so early 20th century. Teachers College was the, like, gave a degree to Shirley uh, Chisholm, who was the first female black candidate for president in the U.S. And at the same time, if you look at the, the, the discussion practice coming from, from certain 
um, founding figures in Peter Scottish who were also extremely racist and extremely damaging. So again, it's a university, and as a university, it has diversity within it. But I, critical ideas towards schooling, critical ideas towards society, have existed within Peter Scottish since its foundation at the late 19th century. What Professor Friedrich is referring to here is the development of contemporary curriculum. As a concept, it's a little hard to define. It's not a standardized curriculum, but a means of viewing education through a lens of inclusivity, offering a curriculum that challenges typical ideas of what information should or should not be part of the education process. Contemporary curriculum were planted during the civil rights movement. However, these practices were significantly more focused on the classroom material rather than the lens through which it was approached. This precursor to contemporary curriculum was referenced mainly as multicultural education. We wanted to find out how Teachers College as a whole defined contemporary curriculum. Each educator at Teachers College has their own definition of contemporary curriculum. This makes sense. There is no one way to prioritize inclusivity and accessibility. It looks different for every single student that an educator develops a relationship with. Professor Celie Ruiz offered her definition of contemporary curriculum, referencing its origins in multicultural education. Contemporary curriculum is curriculum that I would say is relevant to the lives of the students, but also relevant to the lives of their teachers. And I think if we look in history, certainly education history, we see this idea of meeting contemporary curriculum with um, multicultural education movement, the multicultural education movement that eventually sort of flowed into the culturally responsive, culturally sustaining, culturally relevant education movement. And in terms of black history or any history of folks who have been traditionally marginalized uh, in this country, it's important for us to teach it, not just historically, but in the current times, right? So what is the history of those groups and how are they faring now? So I think any curriculum that uh, can offer that long view, as well as um, have its temperature on what's happening uh, now, is what I would call contemporary curricula. Professor Chico Knight, an adjunct professor in Teachers College, offered his own definition. For me, I look at contemporary curriculum as anti-racist curriculum. So when I think about curriculum, I mean, a contemporary curriculum, I think about ways in which we actually become more conscious of some of our uh, implicit biases, our unconscious biases, and also as educators and how are we making ourselves relatable to the kids. And I think when you when you implement anti-racist education or anti-racist curriculum, you know, kids will have an uh, understand a better understanding of 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 what's actually going on. With and and I think that that knowledge set uh, uh, helps them to uh, navigate spaces in which you know they are assumed not to know, uh, assumed not to be able to learn. Professor Friedrich also shared his definition. So when you ask me, for me, curriculum is. A question. It's not a, a thing, right? It's a set of questions about knowledge in the classroom or educational setting. Um, 
And, and there, again, I situate power dynamics and pods at the core of those questions. Education is always political. And political is not a dirty word here. It's not something to be avoided. Political means there's something at stake. There's some perspective. There's power dynamics at the core of teaching. So even when teachers say, I don't want to be political, that is a political statement. That is a political position about what counts and doesn't count as knowledge in that classroom. When a teacher says, I don't want to talk about this because it's too political in my classroom, that's telling students schools are not a place to talk about those things. And that's also a very dangerous message many times, right? So in that sense, for me, curriculum is much richer when you think about those questions. What are the power dynamics at the core of knowledge in classrooms? Professor Friedrich focuses on the idea of circular knowledge. Essentially, this looks at who gets to determine what deserves to be on the syllabus. Curriculum is more than what is taught in class. It's a set of questions that help guide learning. So again, what counts as knowledge? Whose knowledge counts? Whose knowledge is centered and marginalized, et cetera, et cetera. So when you think about curricular knowledge, I think it's super important to think then into the power dynamics, right? Who gets to decide what counts as knowledge in a particular classroom? Historically, how did it come to be, right? Was always that? Did it change? Did it stay the same? Then also um, thinking of power dynamics always as being historically, politically, geographically situated. They're not the same everywhere at any time. So to think of, of those whole histories make us aware of the possibilities, right? If it was all, not always the same, that means it could be different. So a lot of teachers tend to see curriculum as fixed, as something that they are constrained by, as the standards that they have to teach. But those same teachers, when you show them the history of that and the possibilities, and, and also the power dynamics that led to those restrictions start to think of other possibilities. So what else is out there? What else have people done with the same standards or with other standards? How these standards come to be? Contemporary curriculum isn't just a prescribed set of inclusive lesson plans. Putting contemporary curriculum into practice means doing the active work every single day to question one's own biases and question why certain knowledge is taught or is not taught in the first place. Contemporary curriculum is extremely relevant to teaching Black history. In the past, Professor Celia Ruiz explained, Black history mostly focused on enslavement, or a lesson plan that highlights a few prominent Black historical figures. So if you look now, um, there is the same history that has been taught over and over and over. We're celebrating the same holidays. Perhaps the only interruption was Dr. Martin Luther King's um, holiday in the uh, early 1980s. Other than that, it's the same holidays that go without question. And so we have to take a historical view of this to understand where we are. I think the question begs the question of how is it able to uh, remain uh, in the way that it has, right? How is the curriculum from the 1800s, uh, the idea of it, and literally some of the, the content still um, being seen as this is the, the information that children need to know. So I think that's the first question to understand the history. I want to say that there has been interruption with the multicultural movement, with the culturally responsive movement. In terms of my own department, you know, what we try to do is make sure that we bring in diverse voices. We look at our own curriculum. Are we talking about issues of race, class, gender? When we are asking students to read scholars, are they citing black scholars? Are they citing women scholars? Are they citing LGBTQIA scholars? Right. So all of that matters. Despite this, 
applying contemporary curriculum to teaching black history requires more than just additions to the syllabus. Professor Friedrich explains the need to teach black history as fundamental to the founding of America, as opposed to a separate storyline. He makes reference to the work done by the 1619 Project, a New York Times initiative working to reframe discourse around how slavery fits into the narrative of America's founding. He applies these frameworks in his own classrooms and encourages students to do the same. It's not just humanities classrooms that can implement curriculum overhauls when it comes to teaching black history. Professor Knight delved into his own personal struggle with applying contemporary inclusive curriculum to the STEM classroom. When you think about math, and I struggle with this as a black educator with a science background, I struggle with that initially. It's like, how can I get my, the students engaged? One thing that I always do is when I teach uh, chemistry or whatever science I teach, I make an emphasis on some of those black scientists that are, you know, doing, that have done the work and that have been very um, successful in their career. Like, for example, Macy uh, Jemison, she's the first one of the first astronauts, uh, Katherine Johnson. Things like that is what I, I try to focus on when I'm actually teaching in the classroom. Like, for example, I talk about how Katherine Johnson did uh, math. Uh, I talk, and I talk about how um, Benjamin Banneker, you know, how he, what kind, the type of work that he do, did in the sciences. Uh, so things like that. Uh, is what kind of how I focus on uh, when when I incorporate some black literature. And then also the one thing I I also tell the students is like black black history is not just one month. Black history is is every day. Every every day, uh, black black students, Dominican students, Latino students, uh, uh, Latinx students, and we're all they're all making some type of history. And so I, I try to make them, I try to emphasize on, on the work that has been done and also emphasize what they can do, uh, you know, if they put their mind to it. During our conversation, Professor Knight also brought up the idea of representation as an aspect of contemporary curriculum. When students see themselves reflected in positions of prestige and power, they have the opportunity to engage more deeply and see a potential future for themselves. And then also, like as a as the as a black educator, I I had to realize that in some ways I am a role model for them. They they are seeing people that are in positions that they uh, have not probably have not seen before. Uh, I remember even in my uh, chemistry class, I made them call me Doctor Knight because sometimes they didn't they didn't you know you a real doctor, not a medical doctor, but I have a doctorate, you know, like. And it just kind of let them know what possibilities they could have uh, as uh, if they put the work in. Teaching and celebrating Black history as it should be taught and celebrated requires changing the way we think about our history. Moreover, we shouldn't only concern ourselves with Black history during February. Black history and contemporary curriculum are relevant every single day. Professor Friedrich challenges the idea of Black History Month. Right, so the first question that we can ask is, why is Black history relegated to one month as separate of silent history? So the, the history in general, like what, it's what Nicole Hannah Jones called the silent white, right? So when you call history versus Black history, or is that history that doesn't have a, 
acting as qualified at the beginning is a silent white, right? And so the question of what kind of knowledge is what, how do you come to think about black history as a separate thing that only deserves a month and is not integrated into the way in which we think about history? There are some really interesting researchers that have been saying that it's also not a, ma a matter of adding on. It's not you have a curriculum and you add black history. Is the, the, the question is how can we think differently about blackness history? How can that reframe history, not black history? So it's not a matter of adding things. It's not like having a unit on a black figure in uh, American history. It's not having a unit on a Latino figure in American history. It's thinking about how those marginalized histories can help us reframe the whole narrative about what it means to be an American, what it means to have a country called the United States, and how it has that, and continues that to impact the present, right? History is super interesting when we think about it in terms of how it shaped the way we came to be today. How is that it's shaping our common sense? What we consider to be natural, we consider to normal. All of that is historically and politically tied to all these different histories. And so in that sense, um, black history is part of this question of how do you come to be at it, but as a separate thing? As Professor Friedrich highlights here, the education system holds a responsibility to adapt to the needs of the students. In order to do this, we can't simply rearrange the logistics of curriculum. It doesn't work to just add black history to the existing framework. In order to appropriately tackle the teaching of black history through the lens of contemporary curriculum, educators must examine the legacies of slavery and how those marginalized histories can help to reframe the narrative surrounding Americanness and institutions that are too often taught without reference to their oppressive histories. Professor Celie Ruiz also touched on the importance of representation and how students and teachers alike can apply racial literacy to more than just Black History Month. You know, in terms of teaching Black history, uh, I'm, I'm seeing some shifts. I'm so grateful that schools are moving away from just teaching enslavement. I mean, that when we talk about, right, when we're talking about this curriculum that has been tried and true, I mean, why are we still doing this when there's so many amazing ways to celebrate the beauty of blackness? So how do we teach it? First and foremost, part of my racial literacy development model is this idea called archaeology of self. And that is that folks, people have to do that deep self work that we have to understand where the biases, the racism, the homophobia, all of the phobias and isms, where it lives within, and to go through an excavation process to rid ourselves of that. What I suggest is that we replace it with a critical love, a, a love of liberation, but that's for another conversation. But what I will say is that a lot of times teachers go to teach Black history during Black History Month without really understanding their connection to it without really understanding, well, what do they really think, you know, about Black people, about uh, their conditions, about the way that they're treated in schools? So it's very surface level. So I would suggest that teachers have to do a bit of uh, deep self-work and then find something that they connect with uh, from a Black person, from Black culture, from Black history, and start there. Because then they will be starting with, with an authentic not just performing and opening up a textbook and saying, we're going to do this, but as humans, we're all connected. So the first thing is that there should be this authentic connection before you teach it. 
Uh, no, the first thing is it stops teaching about enslavement. Can we stop doing that, <laughs> please? And the second thing is to teach uh, something that is authentic. Uh, and the third thing is in terms of developing racial literacy and knowledge, just like really listen to students, listen to what they want to learn, allow them to be teachers in that context. We don't do enough of that. In the words of my dear friend, Dr. Godi Muhammad, she says, you know, start with the genius of a child and then take it from there. And I think if we, we, if we do that, whatever month it is, Black History Month, March, April, May, June, if we're starting with genius, we're going to have very different outcomes in our classrooms. These interviews warrant a plethora of follow-up conversations and further inquiry into the future of classrooms and curriculum. But Professor Friedrich, Professor Celie Ruiz, and Professor Knight all speak to the fact that the lens of contemporary curriculum illuminates a future for Black history education that centers identity, experience, and individuality within the classroom. This future isn't just theoretical. It has tangible impacts on the way that current and future children going through the United States education system will consume Black history. Are they going to recognize that the history of Black Americans is equally as fundamental to the founding of their country as their white counterparts? Or are they going to be stuck doing worksheets about how slavery changed the economy? Professor Friedrich shares an anecdote about how he's fighting for his own children to get the contemporary education that they deserve. First, I mean, I have to say, of course, I'm not an expert in early childhood education. I can talk about it, but I'm not an expert in, in early grade, like in the earliest pre-K kindergarten, right? But I have to say that um, also I'm a parent of, of young kids. And one of the things is, first, you don't hide things from kids. You don't try to, to tell them the world is perfect and, and that doesn't work, right? Because kids are extremely perceptive. Kids see race. Kids see differences. Kids see how different people are treated differently. And so it's our responsibility as educators to deal with that, to deal with the, the idea that our society treats different people differently. And if we try to silence that conversation kids, one of the things they learn immediately is there are certain things we don't talk about. I had a very strong argument with a pre-K teacher because when I asked the teacher that, I, I told her that the need to be conversational about race in one of my kids' classrooms. She said, well, I talk about race. I talk about the human race. And that colorblind perspective is very damaging because, again, it, it tells teachers, it, it tells kids, very young kids from an early on age, that these are taboo issues, that they shouldn't get into it. And kids see that all the time. So we need to confront that. That's from very early on. And now how to do it? I mean, again, it's a curricular project in the school. So I think that's to be conversation among teachers so that conversations continue from one grade to the other. They're coherent. I think we need to trust school leaders and teachers to create a curriculum that is appropriate for the class. But also we have to keep them accountable. We can't just I mean, trust them, trusting them doesn't mean just letting them do whatever they want. It's also being on top of it so that they assume the responsibility to educate our kids in racial justice, in systemic issues, so that our kids can do a world different than we have now. Hey, my name is Obi Okoli, the composer on the episode, and I created the intro and outro with sentiments of Black history in mind. I often experiment with R&B, rap, and Afrobeats and intended to create something that captured part of the rich history of Black culture and music. 
With many genres to choose from, I felt most inspired to produce something with hip-hop drums and soul music. Incorporating sounds from the past and present, I sampled Denise Williams' Silly, one of the many soul songs I grew up listening to. I also sampled harmonies from the pop R&B duo Chloe and Halle, younger artists today. I took the opportunity to learn different types of sampling methods inspired by Kanye West's production, including repitching, tempo flex, and low frequency filtering. I hope the outro merged with some chords that I played on the piano, Malcolm X's historic Battle of the Bullet speech, and contemporary drums puts listeners in a headspace where they're encouraged to reflect on the relationship between past and present and the broader implications of Black History Month.